All right. Um, well, we are undertaking uh, a study of uh, Daniel 7, and I'm grateful uh, that we, we go through the chapters in the Bible because I would have skipped this one. <laughs> I just mean it's, it's, a, it's an intense chapter. Um, it's full of um, imagery. Um, there's four beasts. They're going to describe each of the beasts. They're talking about ten horns and uh, winged lions and... I, 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 if you didn't know the Bible, you'd think that Daniel was a drug addict. I mean, that's, no, I'm kidding. Um, but it, it is a powerful passage, and uh, it has to deal. It deals with what we call eschatology, the study of the end times. We're going to take a look at it this morning. I'm not going to make you stand, but if you'd open to Daniel seven, and if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. These folks will get you one. Raise your hand. You're going to need a Bible. Daniel seven. Raise your hand. There we go, over here. Perfect. Any others? There we go. All right. So I'm not going to have you stand because there's quite a bit to read and um, you'd be exhausted and you wouldn't be able to pay attention, I think. But let me uh, just put it into context before we study it. We've gone through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel and their narrative, they're dealing with a point in history, and we've seen how Daniel's interacted. We've seen Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego on the fiery furnace. We've seen Daniel in the lion's den. We've watched him go through the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belshazzar, and, and now he's with uh, uh, Cyrus, Xerxes. Um, so we're seeing him go from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire. We've seen him grow older. And um, this is an interesting book because there's only one time in the entirety of the book where God's personal name is used, and it's found in Daniel 7. It's, it's uh, what they call a tetragrammaton. It's God's personal name. It's where we get in the English translation, Jehovah. Uh, it's in the Hebrew, it's Y-W-H-W. It's uh, four consonants together. Hebrews don't know how to pronounce it. It was the holiest of names. It's usually uh, connected with an attribute of God, so it'd be Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Tizdekanu, Jehovah Rapha. It, he's, God is our healer. God is our provision. God is our strength. And, and so his attributes are always uh, connected with his personal name. Um, D- David used the name when he was in the Valley of Elah, when he declared Jehovah. And what he basically was saying is the same thing that Moses said when he saw the burning bush and God declared his name. His name means, I will be for you whatever you need when you need it. And, and God is always there. And it's this personal connection that we are his children. We have a relationship with God. There's no other religion in the world that's like this. In Islam, God is capricious. He's, he's unattainable. He's unapproachable. Um, you know, this idea of the little drummer boy bringing his, his song to the Lord as though feeble man can bring anything to a holy God is, is unfathomable in the Islamic religion and in, in the Muslim world. But in Christianity, that God not only would tolerate, but that he'd accept it. Uh, that God would become man, that God would be crucified, that there's a humility to God. These are all things that are hard for for the world to fathom. Um, And yet, here we see in Daniel, his name is revealed in in Daniel chapter 7. And in addition, um, in Daniel chapters 1 through 7, there's a language that's used that Daniel writes in. It's Aramaic. It's now a dying language, but it was a language of Jesus. He spoke Aramaic. And, and so chapters 1 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And then after chapter 7, Daniel returns to his native tongue of Hebrew. And from 8 until the conclusion of Daniel, he speaks in Hebrew. Now, 
Uh, the first six chapters are narrative, although we did have that dream that was interpreted by Daniel. It was still narrative. And now in chapter 7, we come to this dream. And the dream, interestingly enough, was given when Belshazzar was king of Babylon in the first year that Belshazzar was king of Babylon. So uh, chapter 7 is not even in context. It's almost like it's connected to Daniel chapter 2. We've gone through the Medo-Persian Empire taking over the Babylonian Empire, and then we get to chapter 7. It comes right back to the Babylonian Empire with chapter 7. So it's a little odd. Uh, traditional eschatologists, eschatology means study of the end times, uh, with this traditional approach, they're going to attribute these four beasts to four existing kings that tie in with Daniel chapter 2. So you'd have the, we're going to see the lion with wings going to represent the Babylonian empire, and you're going to see the bear representing the Medo-Persian empire. You're going to see the leopard representing the empire of Greece, and then you're going to see this Roman empire with this beast with iron teeth that crushes everything else. And then from the ashes of that will rise this Antichrist and ten kingdoms revived, which we consider today to be maybe in a sense the European Union or, or from this uh, reconstructed Roman Empire will come the Antichrist in the end times. That's a traditional view. We're going to go through that and the modern view. Um, you've heard me often say from this pulpit that every eschatology, every point of view of eschatology comes with an asset and a liability or assets and liabilities, plural. Um, some folks in the room are what we call mid-trib, pre-trib, post-trib. Uh, some are pre-millennial, post-millennial. That just means that some folks believe we're going to be raptured before the tribulation, so we'd be you know, pre-trib. Uh, others think we're going to go through the tribulation. Uh, I can share with you that that's been the discussion for hundreds of years, if not over a thousand years, that there's been different views of the end times. Whenever I teach um, a book that has eschatology, whether it be Ezekiel or Daniel or Revelation, I always teach from the concept of how it was written that it's to bring encouragement to a persecuted people which is typically when you read these passages, God's showing you that he has the end already in control and he knows what he's doing and he wants to bring comfort to the people who are reading it because persecution awaits them and trial awaits them, but God is in control and he uses all things together for good. Um, you know, there are some folks who, you know, pastor, you need to focus more on pre-trib or pre-millennial. And I would just say to you, I just got back from Israel. Uh, you want to talk about the 1040 window, longitude and latitude, where uh, the, the majority of the Muslim world exists and where our Christian Arab brothers and sisters exist. They're being massacred at epidemic rates. I mean, they're being wiped off the face of the earth. ISIS is running rampant. Our Arab Christian brothers and sisters are being wiped out. And if you were to come to them and say, we're not going to go through the tribulation, they would look at you like you're from another planet. You want to go to some of our brothers and sisters in China who are imprisoned right now or in North Korea and tell them that they're not going to go through the tribulation, they would look at you like you're insane. Uh, we, we, we like to think that we're not going to face persecution. All I can simply tell you is regardless, you know, I'm, I'm pan-trib, pan-millennial. I believe it'll all pan out in the end. Uh, and, and some of you go, well, that's an escape thing. Well, I would say this to you. Regardless of your eschatology, the Bible commands that we endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Amen. And if you, you, know, you want to split the church over eschatology, that's like picking fly poop out of pepper. <laughs> and some of you are saying, well, you're not preparing people for that. Whoa, 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 whoa. The entirety of the scripture prepares people for whatever's coming. So regardless of your eschatology, we're going to be prepared. God, God has something to say regardless of your eschatology. He has something to say to every person in relation to how to endeavor and how to survive and how to, how to flourish. So uh, that's the fascinating thing about Daniel chapter 7 is because when we read this, Daniel has a dream that burdens him. I mean, he is troubled. And the, the concept of troubled in the Aramaic is overwhelmed. 
And at the end, God says, listen, there's going to be persecution, but I got it. And then the response, which we'll study next week, which I'm really looking forward to, is Daniel's response is a response of prayer for revival. And, and uh, we're going to read chapter 7, and you're going to see some correlation to our current situation today. And whether you have a traditional view or a modern view of who the four beasts are, I can simply tell you this. You're going to read Daniel 7 and go, wow, that sounds very familiar to what we're endeavoring right, or enduring right now in our world. And then a lot of you are asking about my trip to Israel. Uh, I'll cover a portion of that as far as uh, illustration while we're going through the text because it's applicable. And, uh, but I, I want to do an eschatological study. Um, I, but more than that, I want to do... Um, um, you know, an exegetical study of the text as well. So we're going to pick up and take a look at the passage. Um, I'm going to read it. You stay seated and uh, put your seatbelts on. Here we go. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. So he's going to give us a synopsis, a Reader's Digest version. He's not going to go word for word. He's just going to tell you kind of a quick Reader's Digest version. He says, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it, much like the king of Babylon that God put out to pasture and his heart was a stone and then he was humbled and he came to the Lord and he came to an acknowledgement of the living God and in the sense God gave him a man's heart and allowed him to stand like a man and not a beast. Remember that? And suddenly, verse 5, another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. Daniel doesn't give a description of this beast, with the exception of it had huge iron teeth, and it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. That's creepy. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were the eyes of the eyes of man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So uh, eschatologists believe that this is the Antichrist coming out of the revived Roman government, uh, the revived Roman European Union, or however you'd look at it. That's the traditional view. I watched till the thrones were put in a place were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. This is the Antichrist speaking blasphemy. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one one, like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which 
shall not be destroyed. So here we see God reigning, the Ancient of Days, the only time we see that title given to God. Really cool, Ancient of Days, I love that. Amen? Okay, five of you. Uh, Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I mean, he is overwhelmed. I came near to the one of those who stood by me. It's an angel, and he's gonna ask the angel for interpretation. He asked him the truth of all this, And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So the angel says, those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. So that's a redundancy of forever, which means forever, in case you were wondering. Then I wish to know the truth about the four beasts, which was different from all the other, the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that the horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than than his fellows. This is another picture in Revelation 13. We'll see this ten-horned beast as well. Verse 21, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and look at this, prevailing against them until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the most high and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And thus he said, the four beasts shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample and break it in pieces. The 10 horns are the 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. This is the Antichrist. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and a time and times and a half, which is a tribulation. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people. The saints of the most high, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. He later writes in Daniel 8, his response to these troubling visions and it's a prayer. He falls to his knees in prayer. Oh, that the church would be so moved by the seasons that we're in and the troubles that we face that our response would be a, a response of prayer. Prayer is dependence upon God. For 14 years, I've called people to a Sunday night prayer meeting. I've declared from the pulpit, Sunday in, Sunday out, come to the prayer meeting. Oh, we pray individually, but corporately we struggle. Prayer is so unfamiliar to the believer. We preach on it, we talk about it, we know its efficacy, but yet we don't practice it. We, we're, we're unfamiliar with it. We think it's a waste of time to talk to a God that doesn't respond, but he does. God responds in powerful and amazing ways. You're gonna see that as I was gone in Israel for 14 days, the way that the Lord worked, the things that God has done through this little fellowship, and I believe the power of that all emanates from the Sunday night of prayer. But it's still difficult to have people come to pray. When times get worse, we'll find ourselves on our knees more often you're going to see that when someone is troubled by a dream like Daniel's been troubled, when someone is troubled by the future and what the future holds and the trials that the saints will undergo, the response of those who are mature in Christ will be to be on their knees, interceding and praying and asking for strength through those trials. I can tell you right now, 
in the absence of seminaries and churches that are, have been burned and fellowships that can no longer meet and Christians that are imprisoned in the 1040 window, I can tell you right now what they're doing. They're praying. I can tell you what our brothers and sisters in China are doing. They're praying. I can tell you what all of our brothers and sisters in Korea are doing, especially if they're in the work camps or praying, North Korea. I can tell you that they understand the power of prayer, but we in the church in America don't think that laboring in prayer is of any profit or any, abil- any blessing, but it is. We'll come to know it more in the coming days as we see things like judges removing the rights of Boy Scouts, and we come to see these things place themselves upon us as our religious liberties are removed. And the nation we once grew up in is no longer the same as there's been a fundamental change. As we're watching as the president through an executive order can make five million illegal aliens now uh, legal and how they can get three years of tax return blessing uh, that they never paid a single tax but have three years of tax credits coming to them through one executive order. A nation that was established with a a checks and balance system with a three-part government, executive, legislative, and judicial, where the executive branch usurps those authorities, and we're wondering what happened to our representative form of government. We'll see as people begin to pray more. We'll watch as they begin to silence the pulpits in America, and they begin to slowly remove those religious liberties. We'll start to see the value and the power of prayer. But now, we don't seem to think it's all that trying even though we're watching nuclear pr- proliferation in Iran and we're watching as North Korea is stepping up its endeavors and ISIS is murdering and beheading children and women and, and men, Christians, as uh, bombings go on in Europe and coffee shops, uh, guns, gunfire rings out as men and women who try to speak uh, and have the freedom of speech are now silenced as um, realms of England are now under Sharia law and portions of Michigan and America under Sharia law as we're watching as Islam is invading all of Europe, as 7.5% of France is now Islamic, as we're watching as it only took, I think, 8%, 75 to 8% of Germany to become Nazi for 50 million people to die. We're watching now as Italy has a negative birth rate and the Muslim world has an 8.1 birth rate, and we're watching as the, the world is tumbling and collapsing before our very eyes. We have a president who seems not to have any type of um, a focus to end it. We're watching as 60% of the sitting army of Russia is Muslim. We're watching as nations are arising and America is $18 trillion in debt. We're watching as rights that we once held dear are gone. And we're wondering as Christians where all this is, as we're being silenced continually. And this trip to Israel touched me in some very deep and profound ways and I'm thinking about the hypocrisy of our nation here as, as these kingdoms are rising and it seems as though governments are always and have always been in um, a, a, a mode of seeking more power. Governments declare that, that rights are from, from man, not from God. We had a CNN newscaster declared rights don't come from God, they come from the collective conscience of the government. This is in direct opposition to what we had our founding fathers establish of a nation that, unlike any other nation on the face of the earth, understood the power of religious liberty. And now that's being suppressed. And if they can silence the churches, they can control the minds. And now as this is reaching its full force and we're watching from uh, the news desks across the nation, um, a, a rewriting of the laws and of of times and of history and rewriting what the news is stating and and we're buying it hook, line, and sinker. There's some of you in the congregation now as you sit here, you detest Israel. You think that they are are warmongers. You have no clue. You have been fed a 
uh, just a, a, an absolute bucket of lies. You think that the Palestinians are under control and that they're being suppressed by the Israelis. And all I have to say to you is there are hundreds of thousands of Muslims living in Israel and there are zero Jews living in Palestine or the Palestinian Authority. They'd be dead right now. In, and the Palestinians don't want a state any more than Hitler just wanted the Sudetenland. They want every Jew wiped off the face of the earth. There is persecution going throughout all of Europe. Uh, Netanyahu is calling for Jews to come to Israel. It's the last vestige and sanctuary on the face of the earth. It's a democracy. If you're anti-Semitic and you struggle with that, all I have to say to you is there is a Democrat excuse me, there is a representative form of government in the Middle East in the 1040 window, the only one that exists, exists surrounded by enemies and, and they're under siege. They have one ally, America, and that president of our country no longer backs them, won't even entertain their prime minister. This, are, this, is, this is the situation we're in. We're in trying times. And so when we see this picture in Daniel chapter 7 of these four beasts, if we look at the traditional view of, of who these beasts are, before I do that, I love what one author says in, in interpreting this text, and I was blessed by it. It drew my attention because of the way he addressed it. He said, the emphasis of this brief interpretation falls not on the enemies of God. He's speaking of Daniel 7. He says, the emphasis of this brief interpretation falls not on the enemies of God, their power, their brutality, nor their boasting, but on the kingdom of God, its certainty and its permanence for all saints, for all the saints forever. He says the emphasis is positive. Now reading Daniel 7, I wouldn't say that the emphasis is positive as we're going through it, that saints will be persecuted and that the fourth beast will run amok and have authority over all the earth and that God would permit people to suffer we struggle with that as Christians. God would allow us to suffer. The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job for those of you who don't think God intends us to suffer. It, was, it predated Genesis. Job was a righteous man and faced persecution and suffering simply because he was righteous and God permitted it. And I have news for you. For those of you who think that suffering has no benefit, God always wins. We may suffer, but it's temporary suffering for eternal glory. In Romans 8, 28, some of you consider it trite, but it says all things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even suffering and trial, it's the perfecting of our faith. It's God causing us to go through the refiner's fire and remove the slag of our life that we would trust him in the most difficult of times so that we would have faith. We'll stand firm in the midst of absolute darkness so that none of us would waver or falter. A faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. And I say this because, listen, I understand what it's like to go through trials. I understand what it's like to have God just kick you in the gut and you, you just, you know what, Lord? I was not expecting that and I can't breathe right now. I mean, that one was a gut check. It hurts. I remember three in the morning after the election just, just saying, God, this is not what I expected. I, I think you got this wrong. I think you were asleep at the wheel, quite frankly. I don't see how anything in good could come from this. Lord, there, were, there was $850,000 that people poured into this election. They, they, they donated sacrificially to this. I let them down. God, I don't know how I'm supposed to face these folks. And in, in the midst of that, and the voices, and the heartache, and the troubles of that, the Lord said, I got this. The last thing I would have expected is through the course of the election to have met uh, through the season of time, folks that are just so generous and sweet. 
One person in particular so moved by the faithfulness of this congregation that in the course of our trip to Poland and, and England to come to this church and be blessed by the congregation and the prayer that happens on Sunday nights and the things that we're doing as a congregation and how we're affecting our community. This person who's from Texas was so moved that, that his comment was, I don't see how, how that church has any people in it. And I said, why is that? He says, you, you can't find the church. I said, well, it's the smartest congregation in the Conejo Valley. If you can find the church, you're brilliant. He says, you need to be on the freeway. I said, well, that'd be nice, but have you seen the price of real estate in the Conejo, especially on the freeway? And this man happens to be very wealthy. He just put an offer in on the church on Borchard, the, the uh, Nazarene church on Borchard. And, and he put the offer in for $2.5 and, and committed to $750,000 to refurbish it to bless our congregation. Now, the Nazarene church sold it to the Hindu temple. We had the exact same offer with less contingency, so we're, second, we're, we're first position in case they fall out of escrow. His comment was, well, go find another one closer to the freeway. <laughs> really? <laughs> now, some of you are going, well, you didn't tell us. You didn't talk to us about it. Some of the elders are going, well, what about, well, let me just help you with that. We're not going to own it. They will. They'll lease it to us for a dollar a year. And I'll tell you what, when it's purchased and they're ready to lease it to us, then we'll have an elders meeting. And then you can vote on whether or not we want it for a dollar a year. And if you vote no, we're going to get new elders. It's happening like that. And all I'm telling you is, you, can you tell me another congregation blessed like that? And we can look at it and go, oh, but we did and we failed. We did. Stop. Stop. God works all things together for good. All things. And so when we look at this, I'll tell you the interpretation of this author, and I'm so blessed by it. He says, before the kingdom of God is established on the earth, four earthly kingdoms will rise and fall. He says these kingdoms will go from bad to worse. Arrogant, boastful, even blasphemous kings will reign over the nations, opposing God and oppressing his saints. You see, the message of this text is quite simple. It's really simple. It's summed up in exactly the way that this author said. Before the kingdom of God is established on the earth, four earthly kingdoms will rise and fall. These kingdoms will go from bad to worse. Does that sound familiar? Arrogant, boastful, even blasphemous kings will reign over the nations opposing God and oppressing his saints. This author goes on to say that during the times of oppression, it's all by God's design. God's in complete control. It may appear that the saints are being defeated and that God's kingdom is but wishful thinking. And when the sin of the oppression of evil men reaches a predetermined point by the Lord, God will remove them and establish his promised eternal kingdom. Then the saints will receive the kingdom which will never end. That's the word forever. A number of lessons from our text, he says, have broad applications to our thinking and conduct as Christians. He says, consider these lessons. He says, prophecy is revealed not to give us the particulars of things to come, but to change our perspective. When you know God's got it, you can endure it. Yes? yes? As the boasting horn of Daniel 7 seems to be getting away with his blasphemies and his oppression of the saints, it seems to him he can do whatever he wishes, including changing the times and the laws. We've seen that with our government authorities. And the wicked prosper in their sin, and it seems as though they can continue in sin without any fear of divine judgment. We've had the, the largest transformation of the middle class to poverty in the history of the United States as we've watched these bankers and everyone else just just absolute gobble up all the wealth of America. The only, we're watching the, the wealthy and the poor separate. The middle class is gone. Oh, I'm here to help the middle class. No, you aren't. 
We've been milked, we've been cheated, we've been lied to, and it is an absolute scam. Their perception is wrong, for suddenly, without warning, their day of destruction will come upon them, and when that day comes for them, it'll be too late to repent. That's the picture that we see in Daniel 7. As the saints suffer at the hands of the wicked, it may appear all hope is lost. Ever been in a place like that? It may seem to them that their defeat is certain and that their hopes of entering into the eternal kingdom are lost. But remember this, things are not always as they appear. It's like looking in the rearview mirror. When we expect at least, God will then return. Trust him. That's called faith. This author says, how important is it for us to identify the kings and the kingdoms mentioned in our text? Are we supposed to discover their identity? His comment is, Daniel was told that the beasts are kings, but he was not told the identity of the kings. Neither are we. We can, you know, try to figure it out, but we won't know for certainty. The point of the prophecy is not to tell us who future kings will be, but rather what they will be like. Now that we can understand. Until God's eternal kingdom is established, kingdoms will progress from bad to worse. The kings will rise to power and dominate the earth, and in the latter days, an unusually powerful and evil king will rise who will blaspheme God and oppress the people. That's the Antichrist. When his appointed time is over, God will destroy this king and his kingdom and establish his eternal kingdom on the earth. This is what we need to know from Daniel's vision. Instead of the identity of the beast, what we need to know is that God wins. And then finally, this author says, what is the point of the vision? What is its message to Daniel, to the Jews, and to us? In the latter days before the kingdom of God is established on the earth, kings and kingdoms will become worse and worse. The wicked will prosper and appear to get away with their opposition toward God and his saints. The righteous will suffer, but in the end, God will judge the wicked and establish his kingdom for his saints. The point in declaring all this is that there's two views as to who these four kings are. There's a traditional view and a modern view. I've, for many years of my life, have held to the traditional view, and as of late, I'm moved by the modern view. I'm in the middle. Some people will consider me a heretic because I'm moved by the modern view, and some of you will just feel so adamant about your eschatological view that this will be a burden to you, and if that's the case, I'm... Don't let the door hit you on the way out. I mean that. If you want to divide the church over eschatology, then, then the Bible says endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We can agree that we disagree, but eschatology is not something to divide over. Amen. It's not an essential. And in relation to this, it's to prepare us. And I think Daniel 7, if we look at it like we look at Revelation, it's to prepare saints for whatever the end has in store. And whether you're in the 1040 window or you're in the luxury of America, God's word is a precept for all of us to learn from and how to be prepared, regardless of your eschatology. But I will give you the traditional view of the eschatology as to who we perceive the four beasts to be. Traditional view is they take Daniel 7 and they tie it in with Daniel chapter 2 with a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had and they tie this all in. They say that the creature that was the lion with the wings... Uh, represented the Babylonian Empire. And when the archaeologists had unearthed most of Babylon, they found this, this winged lion creature, you know, chiseled into the stonework of Babylon. Could be true. They say that the beast, the second beast, which is a bear, uh, is the Medo-Persian Empire. The bear is larger than the lion, uh, not as powerful, but they, they see this as a picture of the Medo-Persian Empire. The third beast, interestingly enough, is this leopard with wings, a rapid, fast-moving beast that they would attribute to the, the kingdom of, of Greece that would be under Alexander the Great who had conquered the known world in a very short period of time. By the age of 30, there was nothing left to conquer and he lamented that. 
And then they go on to declare that this fourth beast is the Roman Empire that will be you know, reestablished uh, in the European Union with 10 nations. And from that will come the Antichrist. This could all be true. Uh, out of the revived uh, Roman Empire will, will come this, this Antichrist from the ashes of the previous Roman Empire. That could be true. I, I like it. I think it ties in in some respects with uh, the, the text. But I also like the modern view. Joel Rosenberg tends to hold to the modern view, as do a number of, of other scholars. Um, they declare that the first beast in the modern view, interestingly enough, this, this lion with wings, they say, represents Brit- the British Empire, Britain, and America. Now, we as Americans love that because the one question I always get, is America in prophecy? Is America in prophecy? We're the only nation on the face of the earth who cares about that. We're so arrogant. Where are we in prophecy? Where are we in prophecy? Where are we in prophecy? And we, we, we go on to, in, in our eschatological view to declare that Russia is Gog and Magog. And I tell you, the Christians in Russia that are told that they're Gog and Magog, they're frustrated by that. We're not Gog and Magog. And we're going back and forth in relation to that. And then where's American prophecy? And some say, well, here, they're right here. They're the first beast in the sense that, that they rise with, with Britain and they rise with America. They conquered Nazi Germany. They conquered Japan. Uh, December 6, 1941, America had the 22nd largest army on the face of the earth behind Romania. December 7th, we were bombed. Half our Pacific fleet was sunk. By December 8th, people lined up the block to sign up uh, to enlist in the battle to take on two fascist nations. We rose from the ashes of the Pacific Ocean and everything else to become a superpower that dominated the landscape until today. Now today we're waning, we're 18 trillion, trillion, trillion dollars in debt and continuing to implode morally and financially and militarily. We're struggling, we're stretched, we're overwhelmed. And, and you see the second beast is a bear. <laughs> Sound familiar to anybody? California. We do lead the nation in abortions. It quite possibly could be because the bear does devour, but I would go on further to say that it would be Russia. People said Russia was finished, but we're watching this, this beast arise even stronger than it began. And we're watching as they're moving in on the Ukraine, amassing forces, battles are going on that the media doesn't even uh, cover. And we're watching as, as rights are being usurped and, and, and the attempt to try to stop them is to lower gas prices in Saudi Arabia, along with America is trying to shut them down and do what they can. And, and, uh, they're, they're geared as, as, um, um, Israel has found 3.2 trillion uh, cubic feet of natural gas and oil, another 6 trillion cubic feet of oil within their middle section of Israel. And uh, that looks promising to Russia. And 60% of the standing army of Russia is Muslim. Uh, this is a powerful entity. And what's fascinating about these four beasts is that they're contemporaries. These four beasts are contemporaries with the fourth beast. They rise out of the ocean together. So they're all in existence together, which would dismiss in a sense the traditional view and embrace the modern view. So you're going to have America still there. You're going to have Britain still there. And you're going to have Russia still there. And the third beast the third beast, Joel Rosenberg, believes it, it, it could be anything from China to, to Islam. Rapidly moving, like the empire of Greece. And, and you look at this rapid, rapidly moving beast that is, that is overtaking all of Europe. And you're, you're watching as France is imploding. And, and portions of Great Britain are now in, in, engulfed in Sharia law. And you're watching as Italy has a negative birth rate. And the Muslim birth rate is, is over 8 you know, children to every family. And, and yet the European birth rate is negative and, and they're conquering all of Europe, much like the Crusades. 
prior to the Crusades, we're watching as our president is declaring, let's not forget our past, Christians, that we have in common what Islam did. No, we don't. No, we don't. By the time that the Christians entered by the de- declaration of Pope Urban, his desire was to stop the invasion of the Muslim armies that had already taken over the 1040 window, had taken over all of Spain and all of France, and they were coming in. They'd taken Constantinople, and nothing was left at this point of the Christian world. And his declaration was, if we don't stand together, we're going to fall apart. They're, they're decapitating. Read your history, not what someone has interpreted. Go to the original sources. You're, you're believing this junk because somebody's told you and it's fact. Go to the original sources. Study. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And he's declaring that, that the crusades were as awful as, as what the, the Muslims did. There were, there were maybe five battles. Maybe 100,000 people died. But do you know how many died at the hands of Muslims and they invaded Europe to begin with? And as Governor Bobby Jindal said to the president after his comment, he said, listen, we've got the Christian issue under control. Could you stop Islam now? There are no Christians beheading anybody in the world. There are no Jews walking into mosques to blow themselves up. It's not happening. And yet the media, and they rewrite the laws and they rewrite the times as though the history of this is, is totally rewritten. And we're somehow supposed to believe it. This is what the governments do. And it's not true. And so you have this leopard with wings that is moving rapidly across the landscape. And what will happen? Well, these three beasts will be contemporaries of the fourth beast. They'll set the stage for this fourth beast to arise. The European Union. It'll be dominated by the leopard. It'll be dominated by the, the destruction of the, the lion and the winged creature. It'll be dominated by the destruction of the bear, or maybe the bear will join in with the 60% standing force of Muslims that reside in the military of the Soviet Union, and together they rise in the European, and then somewhere along the lines, an antichrist arises. And this, this push for a one-world government that removes God and says we no longer need him when you have a CNN newscaster saying that rights don't come from God, they come from the collective of the government. Could you have ever imagined that from our newscasters? And we just sit back and take it. And all of you are extremists because you believe in the inerrancy of God's word and the deity of Christ. And you'd have, you'd have a, this, this foggy belief that there's absolutes. You are extremists and radicals. And you're equated with the Muslims that are decapitating human beings in the 1040 window. And from this will come this one world government. You say, well, that doesn't exist. I want you to do a little study on Agenda 21. I want you to go into detail and see what the UN has in store for every community. You want to know why they're doing the bullet train from San Francisco to LA? Do some reading. They want to remove all independent travel and only have us on certain rails and live in urban communities and they population control. It's all there. And they're going to do it through this idea that there's global warming and that we have to have carbon tax and, and we're going to transfer wealth and we're going to put it all in the, and they're going to own all the property and all, and there you have it. And if you disagree with it, they're going to bring in more voters and they're just going to wipe it out. Fundamentally change. Some of you go, ah, it's a little stretch. Well, you know, I would have agreed with you 10 years ago. But I'm looking at it now, and I am baffled by what we're facing as a nation. 
And I look at this and I think how overwhelming it is for all of us. But the, the, the power of it for me, and this is what I want us to hold dear to, is this idea that this is all by God's design. He's allowing this to happen. And what he's going to say to us as Christians is to hold firm, to be faithful in the midst of the trial. We're immortal until God's done with us. Don't be afraid of the man who can kill the body. Be afraid of he who can kill the soul. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. As Christians, we don't die. We don't have to be afraid. We can stand firm. We can have faith. We can be like trees planted in living water, streams of living water, whose leaf does not wither, who produces its fruit in season. Whatever we do will prosper. Stand firm. Don't be discouraged. See, this is a positive note. As overwhelming as we look at the government, we say, oh my goodness, America that I know is disappearing. I would just simply say to you, stand firm. Daniel's response in chapter eight, listen to me, Daniel's response in chapter eight is a prayer for revival. We were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Governor Bobby Jindal calling his, his other governors of other states to join him in a response to a nation in spiritual crisis to fall on their knees and pray. He was the only governor who responded. Thousands of people gathered in, in LSU campus and we began to pray while on the outside... Maybe 100, 150 people gathered to protest. John and I, our worship leader, John Mink and I walked outside to see the protesters. The things they were saying were vile. They had no idea what was happening inside. They had no idea we were praying for them, that we loved them, that what we were calling for and asking for was the antithesis of what they declared us to be. It was a lie. And it almost seemed as though they were getting away with it because the cameras were on them, not the thousands inside. A member of our congregation, so moved by what God's doing, wants to take members of the, of the Republican National Committee to Israel. He would have taken the members of the Democratic National Committee to Israel, but they wouldn't give him the time of day. 168 members were invited. Reince Priebus, the chairman, said, do it. One donor, out of the, the generosity of their heart, donates the money for them to go, paying a full, full ride to go to Israel to be exposed to the land where Jesus walked and where the word of God was preserved for thousands of years, where a nation that once was destroyed was, was reestablished in a, in a language that was dead, the only time in the history of the world where a language was dead as a national language and was revived again as prophesied in scripture. Are you, do you see this? And to bring them to Israel, and of the 168 members of the RNC, 60 agreed to go. The chairman agreed to go. And the two donors, and David and Cindy and Michelle and I went over to Tel Aviv two days earlier just to prepare for the arrival of those folks to get out through the jet lag so that we could serve them and love them. And while we're there, we're, we're watching as, as Rachel Maddow on MSNBC decides to take David Lane and scourge him on the news and affiliate him with a man by the name of Fisher who is a homophobe and who is just vicious and awful, who has a radio program. David doesn't even know this man and tying the two together and trying to besmirch it and call the RNC not to go to Israel and making it a national issue on a national program. Somebody in our church. And while we're over there, there's this chance that all 60 of them aren't going to go and they're going to cancel the trip and it's going to be the six of us in two 40-passenger buses. <laughs> now, if they wavered and they were struggling, I can tell you this, you couldn't see it on their face. David and Cindy just continued to pray and the two donors had a peace about it. I got to witness from a distance and had complete joy. My wife and I both were just blessed. 
And sure enough, Reince couldn't make it because his mentor died, but all the other 60 arrived. 60 members of the RNC. There we were on the Mount of Beatitudes. We had atheists, agnostics, Catholics, Mormons, Jews, Protestants, maybe homosexuals, I don't know. We're all gathered there. I mean, it was an eclectic group. It looked like a scene out of the Star Wars bar bar scene. (laughs) And there we are gathered at the Mount of Beatitudes and, and God had given me a word to say to them. And I looked at them and I said, we have nothing in common except for one thing. We're all Republicans. I said, and I want to share with you the last words of the very first Republican president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. The war had been over for seven days. And Abraham Lincoln was sitting next to his wife, Mary Lincoln, in the president's booth at Ford's Theater watching My American Cousin. And they hadn't had any time together. And now they're being affectionate to one another. And he leans into her and he whispers in her ear, when this is all settled and over, I so want to get away from here where nobody knows us. And I want to walk with you in the footsteps of our Savior in the streets of Jerusalem. Bang. And the bullet from John Wilkes Booth went into the back of Lincoln's head and he died on Good Friday. And that was attested by the curator of the Lincoln Library in Springfield, Illinois, as well as Mary Lincoln herself. And I turned to the delegates of the RNC and I said, there were two great emancipators in the history of the world. One was Abraham Lincoln who freed the slaves and Moses who freed the slaves out of Egypt. And neither got to see the promised land, but you do. All of his life he was drinking from the streams of liberty and he longed to come to its source. And for the next 10 days you can drink deeply from the source of liberty. And from that point on, their hearts began to change. 24 people were baptized in the Jordan. Dennis Prager was on the trip. I think that man of all men on the face of the earth is closer to coming to Christ than anyone I've ever met. He's... (laughs) Myself and another man were up till 3.30 in the morning talking to him about the Lord and debating grace and mercy. Talking to his wife and sharing the same thing. Up till 2.30 in the morning on the eighth floor of the hotel we were staying, I was with uh, another very high-level person in the RNC sharing with them about the Lord. Pseudo-Catholic. I won't go into any more detail, but suffice it to say they were deeply moved. I'm just one of many who were ministering. David and Cindy had deep conversations. Pastor Ken Graves had deep conversations. Every person was ministered to. The highlight for me was a, a, a journalist by the name of Bethany who was on the trip. She wasn't a Republican. And she was angry through the course of the trip, just seeing the decadence of some of the RNC members and how they behaved and and her frustration and going to the holy sites, the site of the sepulcher, the holy sepulcher, and her frustration with the materialism and everyone buying trinkets and more people wanting to souvenir shop than, than study Christ. She was ready to write a scathing article. She was frustrated. Pastor Ken Graves administered to her, and I had a brief opportunity at the site of the holy sepulcher to sit with her. As I sat with her and she was angry and frustrated and ready to write a scathing article, I just began to share with her about the grace and mercy of God. I read a quote from Thomas Aquinas about the insanity of Christianity, how, how God would, would allow David to keep Bathsheba even though he's the one who committed adultery and murder and even though he was the one who lied. That's the insanity of Christianity that Eve would steal and would take from God, that which was not hers, 
to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she would take that from God and would result in her death. And God, to restore her, would become like a man and would die in her place on a tree. And this is my body, this is my blood, and eating of the body and eating of the blood is the antidote to what had occurred in the Garden of Eden in a sense. And then, and then to be restored. And this is why the Romans considered us pagans. Christianity, can you fathom that? That we wanted to be like God. Well, guess what? Knowing good and evil, everyone in the room who's a Christian knows good and evil, don't we? So we got that, didn't we? And in return, we got to have our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. How did we get that? God sent his only son. And what did we do? We murdered him. And what did we get in return? That which we tried to steal, he gave it to us. David got to keep Bathsheba. What kind of a religion is this? It's called grace. Mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's the magnificence of Christianity and the insanity of Christianity. She started to hear these things. She was moved. There we were on the city of David overlooking the rooftops of what's had been the city, giving the story about Ahithophel and David, how Ahithophel was David's most trusted counselor, and that, and that David uh, had, had a rebellion with his son Absalom. And Ahithophel sided with Absalom, and it broke David's heart because Ahithophel, when Ahithophel spoke, it was though the mouth of God himself were speaking. It was David's most trusted counselor, his best friend, and he sided with his son. David couldn't fathom that. And when the rebellion failed and, and God thwarted, the scripture says God thwarted, the scripture says God thwarted the counsel of Ahithophel and allowed David to succeed. And as I shared with those who were present, I said, let me tell you about Ahithophel. You see, David was a murderer, a liar, and an adulterer. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and when Bathsheba's husband came in from the front lines, David tried to pretend as though the baby belonged to him by making him sleep with his wife, but he refused because everyone in the palace was talking. Uriah knew what was going on. He wasn't going to be party to the gimmick, and, and he wasn't going to give David the benefit of the doubt. And so David decided to kill Uriah, so he put the hit on him and had Joab put him in the front lines and pull the troops back, and David murdered Uriah. And he lied about it until Nathan confronted him and David confessed. And people were thinking, well, what's the point? The point is this. You know who Ahithophel was? Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. Ahithophel was the father of Eliam, who was the father of Bathsheba. You see, David's friend, Ahithophel, had served David all of his life faithfully. And what did he get in return? David defiled the man's family, defiled his granddaughter, murdered his grandson-in-law, and lied about it. And when Ahithophel sided with Absalom to try to stop this madman, God thwarted the counsel of Ahithophel. And when Ahithophel realized he was going to lose, he went home and hung himself. And I looked at everyone present. I said, God got the wrong guy. God should have thwarted the counsel of David, not Ahithophel. David was the adulterer. David was a liar. David was the murderer. Why did Ahithophel get thwarted? He served David faithfully. David was the one who violated his granddaughter. David was the one who murdered his grandson-in-law. David was the one who lied. Well, the reason why was this. David confessed and asked God for mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. But Ahithophel never forgave him. 
You read the story of the wicked servant. God never called the wicked servant wicked when he owed him millions of dollars. He called him wicked when he forgave him the debt, but that same man who was forgiven millions of dollars wouldn't forgive the guy who owed him five bucks. That's when God called him wicked. And God said, so will God do to you, cast you into fire if you don't forgive your brother his trespasses. The lesson is this. God doesn't tolerate unforgiveness in the life of his kids. With that lesson being said, Bethany came up and said, you know, my sister was murdered at the age of eight. I couldn't process it. I don't understand God. I began to share with her and she started to grasp it and her heart was touched. She was moved. I think about this and I was moved. I was blessed to see how God touched all these lives and what God did. And here it seemed as though the world is raging and and the enemy's in control. I'm watching as my friend David Lane is, is being attacked in the media and nobody's responding. I know this man, I love this man. And everything said about him was a lie. And yet it became fact as they rewrote the times and the laws. Here we are today and three Muslims are murdered and they're calling it a hate crime and they're trying to pin it on Christians. You know Craig Hicks? The man who murdered the three Muslims? He's an atheist. He, 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 he is a liberal. He, he, he's he's in, involved in the Southern Poverty Law Center. He, 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 this, this man is not a believer. But they're doing anything they can to besmirch and attack Christians in any way, shape, or form. Southern Poverty Law Center. The same group that dictated that my friend and an elder of our church is a member of a hate group and a hate monger. I've never met a more loving man in all my life. The same Southern Poverty Law Center that declares my friend to be a hate monger is the same one that allowed Floyd Lee Corkins II to go into the Family Research Council and murder people and he was going to smear Chick-fil-A sandwiches in their face. Guess where he'd gotten his ideas? Southern Poverty Law Center. The times are being rewritten and so are the laws. We're under attack. We're under persecution. Do we give up? No. There were 60 people on that trip that needed to be loved. There were 60 lives that needed to be changed. There were hearts that needed to be touched. I want to close with you what happened as a result of our time together. Rachel Maddow had publicly attacked my friend. I don't have the ability or the wherewithal to defend him in the media, but this journalist, Bethany Blankley, did. Her article was picked up and is nationwide, and this is what she wrote, and this is what I'll close with. She says, this is an open letter to Rachel Maddow about my trip to Israel. This is Bethany, who we sat with in the Holy Eucharist over the city of David. Dear Rachel, I'd like to set the record straight about my recent headlining making trip to Israel and clarify that Brian Fisher's remarks do not represent David Lane. And most importantly, do not represent the pastors to whom he ministers or the many Christians like myself who follow Jesus Christ. Let me also clarify, I'm neither a Republican National Committee member nor a registered Republican, as I have already written. I went on the much ado about nothing Israel trip and met people from all backgrounds, races, religions, and non-religions, ages, and economic and educational backgrounds. Many who went had little knowledge about Israel or Jesus Christ, yet they were open-minded enough to come and learn. 
Which is why, Miss Maddow, I must remind you that by making broad generalizations that lump all Christians or all Republicans into a category represented by inane and hateful comments is unfair, inaccurate, intellectually dishonest, and misleading at best. And such generalizations would, would be no different than me claiming all homosexuals are all Democrats or pedophiles. A claim that would that could easily be made when we consider the open secret in Hollywood or Bill Clinton's involvement with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein or Senator Mendez's and Democratic financial donor Salman Melgin's alleged relationships with underage prostitutes and many other high-profile crimes being investigated that most news organizations and highly paid attorneys and lobbyists are aggressively trying to keep hidden. I detest Fisher's remarks, but I detest even more a news industry that covers up crimes committed against children that are too horrible to fathom. No Christian I know is seeking to cover up pedophiles' crimes. The question is, why would MSNBC? And when it comes to crime, do you approve of MSNBC glorifying Al Sharpton on television, obviously aware that he owes millions in taxes to the IRS when others go to jail for owing less, or that MSNBC profited from the non-Ferguson protesters who looted and burned innocent people's homes and businesses? Ms. Maddow, I appreciate your advocacy for human rights and your track record for calling out hypocrisy, but consider this. President Obama has directed our state, defense, education, homeland security departments to advance an ideology ingrained in oppression of women and children and genocide of non-Muslims. Instead of turning a blind eye to President Obama's directives that are causing indescribable suffering worldwide, why not expose the hypocrisy of America's possibly first Muslim president? Why not demanding that our government stop funding Islam, especially within the context of the separation of church and state? By remaining silent, you ignore the reality that you and others in the gay community are prime targets. Know this, Islam's victims are singled out because of their ethnicity, religion, non-religion, and gender. No lesbians live in Muslim countries. They are all dead. Yet your news organization continues to propagate the lie, if it mentions it at all, that only extremists or radicals commit violence when nothing could be further from the truth. Let me explain why I went on the Israel trip and why I'm sure David Lane and many others would be more than willing to take you or any other Democrat to Israel. First, the Middle East is volatile. I witnessed an explosion near the Israeli-Syrian border, heard gunfire along the Israeli-Lebanese border. Conflict I understand within a biblical and historical context. However, this past week's conflict is specifically a result of several years of President Obama's administration and congressional action that has financially and militarily contributed to regional political unrest. What your viewers may not know is that the American tax dollars are largely responsible for ISIS and the terms moderate Muslim and radical Islam are misnomers. Second, it was Muhammad's followers who in the 7th century invaded present-day Israel, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, Egypt, France, Spain, and many other countries, and they still are brutally killing non-Muslims, including lesbians, because of what the Quran states. Third, and finally, the only line of defense between you and the Muslim Brotherhood are Christians. And in particular, ministers like those who attended this trip, they teach repentance, forgiveness, restoration to wholeness, and affirm your value as a person because God created you and gave you a free will to believe and behave as you choose. The Constitution neither originates your value to society nor your human rights. Rather, it safeguards your already existing God-given human rights. On the Galilean hills I just visited, Jesus brought together men and women and children of varying backgrounds like those on this trip, teaching them about a genuine heart change. If you knew David Lane, you'd know he often says his life was full of drugs, wine, women, and song. I deserve judgment, but God gave me mercy. You'd also know that Lane does not know Fisher, and he is loving to everyone, especially one of his early mentors and his minister's sister, my sister, both of whom 
are gay. It was because of Lane's spirit of humility that he invited a group of people to Israel who were largely unknown to each other and who represented the best and worst attributes of Americans. Which is why it was so important for everyone to hear from ministers who repeatedly emphasized God's mercy. We all want justice. We want those who wronged us to be held accountable and we are offended when we think they aren't feeling robbed because the offenders got away with wronging us. But the reality is that all people are equal in God's eyes. Being a less bad person doesn't make a good person, one minister reasoned. That's why the beauty of forgiveness, mercy, and grace are such profoundly priceless gifts. Our worst offenses deserve judgment, but instead Jesus and only Jesus offers a better way. God offers mercy, meaning we don't get what we deserve. God also extends grace, meaning we receive what we don't deserve. That message of mercy and grace is what David Lane reminded us of on this trip. A trip, I should note, not made possible by any organization, but solely by an anonymous donor's generosity. I want to close with this last thought. The world for sure under any government is going to go from bad to worse. We're going to be in a trial and we're going to go through some tough times. Our response will be like Daniel Lee. We're going to take heart. We're not going to be afraid. You know, this is an age-old adage. It was the same for the disciples. It's the same for us. When they started, there weren't many of them. And they turned the world right side up. At the Great Commission, it was interesting to me that in Matthew 28, which is our memory verse in our quad for our discipleship groups, and men get involved in them if you haven't. Verse 9 of Matthew 28 says, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. And so they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. He had reappeared. He had risen. They saw him. He said, Don't be afraid. A lot of you are afraid. Now watch this. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And the saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. You know where they doubted? Because the government was in control and they were rewriting the times and the laws. They were saying that Jesus' body was stolen and they were paying off the governor and they had control and they had power and they had the soldiers. And these feeble Christians that were just a handful of men and women couldn't fathom how they were going to overcome such daunting odds. And they doubted. They'd even seen the resurrected Lord, but they doubted. And then Jesus appeared to them and he spoke to them. And this was the memory verse and it's touched my heart so deeply and I pray it does yours as well. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. I know what you're struggling with. Relax, I got this. Not only on the earth, but in heaven as well. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen, meaning true. He didn't say, he didn't say, go therefore and make disciples of all peoples. He said nations. 
whether they're a winged lion or a winged leopard, you don't despair and you keep plugging away and you preach the truth and you don't waver. And God will bless you. And we will then go into chapter eight and we will cry for repentance and revival. And this little church is going to change the world. Amen. Amen. Now, before you think that's a boastful statement, this little church isn't going to change the world. This little church submitted to God will watch God move. Lord, we thank you for your word. And the reason why a little church like this or a handful of disciples can turn the world right side up is because you call us to teach them to observe all things that you've commanded. And then you comfort them by saying, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The end of the age, when it seems as though the government is in complete control and that all righteousness is being oppressed and persecuted, I'm with you. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll fear no evil, for I'm with you. My rod and my staff, they'll comfort you. And so, Lord, may we take heart. And like Daniel, who had no friends and was surrounded in his older age, simply with you and no one else, he took heart and cried out for repentance and revival. And God, may that be our heart as well. Bless this little fellowship. Give us strength. Let us not be afraid. For you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. We praise you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.